This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 109. This episode will finish telling the story of the third Astley Belt six-day race competed in New York City in 1879, attended by tens of thousands of spectators. The third Astley Belt six-day race held in March 1879 caused a violent riot in downtown New York City at the start. The shocking details are covered in episode 108. As this concluding part opens, four elite ultra-runners were competing to be the champion of the world and seeking to become the holder of the Astley Belt. The current world champion, Daniel O'Leary of Chicago, had to drop out because of health reasons after about 215 miles on day three. Great Britain's best hope, Charles Rowell, was in the lead with 250 miles. Two others were still in the running, John Ennis of Chicago and Charles Harriman of Massachusetts. On day three, the race continued in Gilmore's Garden, which would be renamed in a couple months to Madison Square Garden. The biggest story about this historic race wasn't about the competition taking place on the track. It was about what was occurring among the crowds of tens of thousands of spectators and the impact of the race on the entire city. Ultra running would emerge as the greatest spectator sport of its era in America. The New York Sun prophesied truly about the bizarre event taking place. When the historian hundred years hence looks over the files of this week's newspapers, he will not believe all that he finds on the subject is sober history. He will take it for a poor joke or a big humbug. And what is there to show for the week's excitement? Several heads clubbed? Thousands of poor wretches encouraged in their betting and gambling proclivities? And four men worn out? This is a great country! At about 8.15 p.m. on day three, a tragic accident occurred among the spectators causing, quote, such a scene of wild and indescribable confusion and alarm that has rarely been witnessed inside a public building. Certainly, it was the greatest accident among spectators in ultra-running history. A temporary upper gallery had been constructed that was divided into boxes. It was an ideal location to view the entire track and was very overcrowded with ten times the number of people intended. A throng of ladies and gentlemen crowded every available inch of the place, some seated and many perched upon chairs and tables. Suddenly, a portion of the gallery collapsed down upon the roof of the pavilion below. The first intimation of danger was the gradual settling of the flooring, then a loud creaking noise, and away went a section of 15 yards of gallery, carrying with it over 100 people. Many, including ladies, were hurled 18 feet below. Thankfully, the structure did not collapse all at once, giving many below some time to escape, including those tending stands for a glass blower and flower bouquets. A few others below were less fortunate. The frail structure broke into small pieces in the descent, and the unfortunate people who were precipitated with it were jammed between the debris, several of them being seriously injured. The most serious injuries involved a broken leg, broken hand, broken collarbone, and a concussion. 
A wall of struggling, groaning, maimed, and terrified people was piled up. A gashed face peeked through the broken timbers, an outstretched arm there. Panic ensued as people started stepping on injured people trying to get away. A crowd of dust spread, seen by all in the building. It didn't stop there. Panic spread throughout the building as some spectator thought the entire building was collapsing. The runner stopped and left the track. A surge of people pressed forward to exit the building near the collapsed area. The police started rescue efforts among the rubble. Women and children went rushing about, almost delirious with terror, looking for their absent friends and relatives. To add to the general alarm, a number of stones were thrown by some ruffians outside as they crashed through the window panes. The sounds were such as firemen make when entering a burning building. It was a miracle that hundreds of people were not crushed in the panic. A policeman rushed to the band and yelled for them to play. At that very moment, when there was the greatest danger of a fatal crash, the band struck up a lively air, the police cleared the track, and Ennis marched through the passage they cleared for him. The fear of the multitude was still great, but lessening by degrees, until a cheer and clapping of hands brought reassurance. About 1,000 people left the building at that time. How many were injured altogether was impossible to state. For men with crushed hats in their hands and coats covered with dust, bleeding from slight cuts on their heads and hands, left the place in haste. Outside the building, people on the streets were surprised to see men coming out of windows, jumping to the ground, risking injury. Rumor spread quickly. Someone yelled, It's on fire! Another, The roof is falling in! This caused panic outside too. Ambulances with clanging bells arrived, attracting many city people with a morbid curiosity. The police brought things into order, at times brandishing clubs. At the accident site, a tangled mass of woodwork remained, with sprinkling drops of blood, broken bottles, strips of cloth, and bouquets of flour that had been prepared for the runners. The rubble was cleared out within an hour. The excitement of the match soon swept away all memory of the accident. I guess the show must go on. By late evening, with a crowd of about 8,000 people, there seemed to be no worry that other heavily laden balconies might fall. The continual great mass of humanity, the shouts, clapping, and the blaring of the band kept the structure pulsating like an enormous heart. The scene was not only wonderful, sublime, and majestic, it was terrible. The effect that the runners had on the crowd was amazing to behold. Whenever one of the pedestrians began a spurt, hundreds of men would precipitate themselves in the direction in which he was going and would rush around the inner edge of the ring like a cyclone. Everything and everybody that stood in their way was swept before them as the sand of the desert. The thunder of their feet upon the floor was like tread of a myriad of buffaloes on the hard-baked surface of the prairie when they are fleeing before a cougar. At the end of this eventful day, the score was Raoul, 283 miles, Harriman, 270, Ennis, 250, and O'Leary retired with 215.7 miles. On day four, after about four hours of sleep, the three remaining runners went back to work. Even with O'Leary out of the race, spectators again filled the building during the morning with large numbers in the streets hoping to get in. The price of admission was raised to $1, or about $28 value today. 
and that kept some people away. Annis became the crowd favorite and received the loudest cheers. Peddlers circulated the halls selling Annis badges for fans to wear on their chests. Others sold trading cards for each of the runners. Raoul concluded that Harriman couldn't win the race and changed to play mind games with Ennis and sprinted past him, causing Ennis to give chase. Round the track they spun, Raoul leading at first, but soon Ennis passed the Englishman. They continued the sprint for a mile as the spectators roared with approval as Ennis won the short event. Outside on the streets presented chaos at times. Each day, workers would eat their lunches in front of bulletin boards waiting for the latest news. Everyone seemed to be keeping score, men of all races and nationalities. As soon as the six o'clock score was made known, the crowd that had swelled to immense proportions separated and boarded the streetcars for home. At 6 p.m., Ennis passed Harriman into second place. Two pickpockets were noticed by the police in the crowd. The two men dashed across the track, right in front of Raoul, who was somewhat frightened, thinking that they were about to assault him. The men were caught just as they were about to rush up the stairs. At the same time, some commotion was caused by three boys who climbed up water pipes outside the building to sneak in the building through a high window, causing a lot of laughter. The police caught them and, quote, Their exit was more painful than their entrance. At the end of the day, the score was Ralph 360 miles, Ennis 335, and Harriman 325. During the wee hours of the morning on day five, the action was very boring with runners away from the track most of the time. In the long rows of red leather-covered seats lining two sides of the building, hundreds of people slept peacefully, and in the dark recesses of the artificial rockwork of the lower end of the garden were many more sleepers, most of whom were boys huddled together in ragged heaps who had smuggled themselves in through the window. What did the runner's huts look like? A description was given of Raoul's. It had a window, door with a white curtain, and a skylight. A gas pipe hastily constructed along the front is strung with fragrant flowers. Three horseshoes of flowers are strung along the door. The tea things inside stand ever ready and on duty. Blouses and undershirts, cardigans, and all the paraphernalia of a pedestrian are scattered here and there. All day Harriman struggled. Poor Harriman tottered around the track like a dead man all day. It seemed impossible for him to go on. But four electric shocks, given at intervals and numerous douses of milk punch, champagne, brandy, and other stimulants poured into him in rapid succession, kept him going until far into the night. He was described as looking like a horse with a nail in its foot. <laughs> the frequent gifts of bouquets of flowers perked Harriman up. Someone stepped forward with a magnificent stand of flowers, and Harriman's face lit up as he received the beautiful token. His trainer stepped promptly forward to his relief and bore the trophy gracefully round and round the track, side by side with the tall walker. Women spectators were numerous. 
They wore all kinds of headgear and every imaginable pattern of outside dress. Hats, fur caps, bonnets with plumes, derby tiles, fur-lined cloaks, woolen jackets, blanket shawls, camel's hair shawls, old women, young girls, fashionably attired ladies, women with opera glasses, women who drank champagne, women who gulped beer, all sorts of women sat and laughed and chatted and now and then waved encouragement. Annis worked hard to keep the belt in America, but if not, was focused on reaching 450 miles in order to earn a share of the massive gate money. He and Ral had sprint races now and then. Away they went for ten laps, the crowd rushing madly around them and cheering like lunatics. Rumors of plotted threats against Raoul to prevent him from winning reached the police and they ordered an extra force in the building. In the evening, when Ennis passed Raoul to unlap himself once, it bugged Raoul and another race took place as Ennis tried to get away from him. The spectators became a mob of howling lunatics. Wave after wave of applause rolled around and around the vast hall, making the timber shake. For three laps, the race continued, and then Raoul, with a laugh, gave up amid wild cheers and derisive yells. Later, a huge cheer went up, so loud that you couldn't hear yourself speak. What is it they're cheering? All eyes are facing east and inspecting the tally board. Ennis, 400. Before the thunders of applause died away, a new thing happened. Walking side by side, suddenly Ennis puts his arms around little Raoul's neck, and for nearly half a lap, the two went on together down the pack. At the end of day five, the score was Raoul, 430, Ennis, 408, and Harriman, 390. Ennis put on an impressive last day performance, but it was very apparent that Raoul would win. The building was surprisingly full at 2.24 a.m. when Ennis came out. This caused a commotion at the 400-foot bar. At least 2,000 men dropped their glasses, spilled their beer, forgot to pay, and rushed for the narrow places of exit. Tables were overturned, chairs were smashed, waiters were pushed here and tumbled there, and more men were jammed against the entrances than ever before to watch Ennis on the track. The band played Yankee Doodle as the crowd of 10,000 sleepless people whistled along in unison and kept time with their feet. Harriman continued on his weary course around the track. His eyes were sunken, his legs trembled, and the whole appearance of the man showed that he was nearly exhausted. There was no life in him. He simply knew that if he made 450 miles, he would get his share of the gate money. There was great doubt that he would reach his goal. He needed to run 58 miles in the last 20 and a half hours on his tired and sore legs. Thin as he was when he began his toilsome progress, his frame now seemed frightfully wasted, and as his legs and arms slowly oscillated, one almost expected to hear bones rattling in their sockets. Raoul was generally treated with respect by the New York crowd, but during the last early morning, when there were few police watching, a, quote, low-browed, hook-nosed individual started to heap abuse on the Brit, Raoul. He called him foul names and riled up the sleepy crowd who remained to shake their fists and shout war whoops. 
The ringleader would rush up to the rail when Raoul passed, shaking his fist in his face, yelling things full of obscenities that included, You English If you win this race, I'll cut your heart out. Boys, go for him. Let's kill this Britain. Then the mob would yell and screech like famished harpies and rush in a body to the opposite side of the ring so as to be ready for him when he came around the turn. The man finally rushed on the track and pursued Ralph for a quarter of a lap with nearly 500 unruly men running around the inner rail of the track following after their ringleader. Some gentlemen urged the police officers to do their duty. The scoundrel was seized and dragged off the track. Then two police were ordered onto the track to walk beside Raoul for protection. Food for the crowd was running short. The lunch counter was doing a thriving business, selling a compound called clam chowder by the gallon, whose principal components were water and pepper. The clams had all but disappeared long before. The waiters could not make sandwiches fast enough to satisfy the hungry crowd of 5,000 who intended to see the conclusion of the match. It was estimated that 52,000 sandwiches were sold during the event. One of the greatest problems for the runners was the tobacco smoke in the air. (coughs) The walls were packed with men, everyone smoking. Cigars adorned the facial features of the majority but cigarettes in the teeth of hundreds poisoned the air and odorized the entire garden. Conflicting cries around the hall were heard. Gentlemen, please don't smoke! And, Cigars! Five cents apiece! The smokers ignored pleas to stop. Great clouds of dense blue smoke curled gracefully over the vast congregation and floated away toward the illuminated rafters and far off into the recesses of the galleries, already suffocating with a plethora of humanity. At 4.30 p.m., a platoon of 110 Broadway police marched into the building and walked around the track near Raoul's cottage. They then spread themselves in a line from there to the scorer's booth. This was generally regarded as a precaution against a riot, and someone in the crowd proposed three cheers for the Broadway squad. However, there was no response. One of the greatest ultra-running displays of sportsmanship was witnessed. As Harriman was limping along the track, Raoul caught up to him at the scorer's table, shook hands with him, and then walked by his side, encouraging him along. Putting his arm within Harriman's, they trod the track side by side, Men rose from their seats, ladies stood on their chairs waving handkerchiefs, and every man in the neighborhood of the two pedestrians was cheering himself hoarse. Anna soon joined them, and all three locked arms. Such sportsmanship dashed away any fears of a riot. Strong men with tears in their eyes said one to another, I would not have missed this for a thousand dollars. Another said, talk about a riot, this is a love feast. Police commented that they were not needed there. During the final hours, the attendance was the largest scene during the race, bursting with people, making it very difficult to even move. Only the track was clear, and that was lined with a double row of policemen. There was a total of nearly 500 officers in the building, some in plain clothes. 
Never before was an assemblage so madly and persistently enthusiastic. The cheers rolled in successive swells around and around the vast amphitheater, wave following wave. In another show of sportsmanship, when Raoul was on his 497th mile, he caught up with Harriman, who had paused to adjust his handkerchief. Raoul held back and didn't pass him. At once there was a cry of three cheers for the little Briton, and a unified cheer from the north side of the house answered back grandly. Raoul smiled, pleased, and the pair continued their journey. At 8.45 p.m., when Harriman was on his 450th mile, all three walked together in honor of the third-place Harriman reaching the critical milestone. Raoul kindly took on pacing duties. The crowd recognized the generous intentions of the two rival athletes, and the rafters sang with such a hearty, spontaneous, and continued outburst of applause as has seldom awakened the echoes of any occasion. Harriman walked the home stretch of his last lap, carrying a pillow with the American shield, and the crowd grew frantic. Everyone sprang to their feet, shrieked, yelled, and shouted, waving hats and fluttering handkerchiefs. The band played the Yankee Doodle as men shouted, screamed, danced, and shook each other's hands with excitement that Harriman had reached the needed 450 miles to receive a share of the gate money, about $100,000 in today's value. And then he went into his cottage, waving his flag, thanking the crowd. Raoul and Ennis continued together for two more laps as Raoul reached his 500th mile for the win in about 140 hours, and then he stopped. He went to his cottage and came out waving an American flag, showing his appreciation to the audience. Reporters were stunned witnessing this largest historic crowd in the garden. All manner of men conducted themselves like lunatics. Every throat was exerted to its utmost capacity. Not a man was silent. Certainly no woman was. Flags waved, handkerchiefs flourished, hats were high in the air. Ennis continued plodding along strongly and received the cheers of the adoring crowd until he finished his 475th mile. He retired to his cottage, and the crowd emptied the building to the tune of Home Sweet Home. The final score was Raoul 500 miles, Ennis 475 miles, Harriman 450 miles, and O'Leary 215 miles. Charles Raoul was the winner of the Astley Belt and the new long-distance champion of the world. Raoul was taken to his hotel room, stripped, rubbed down, and put to bed. He slept on and off for the next eight hours and then got up for breakfast. Many visitors, including young lady admirers, had to be turned away to let Raoul recover. Aww. Raoul knew that his 500 miles were not terribly impressive. He said, The truth is that I was not pushed. I can do better than that. The smoke sometimes made me feel miserable. Often I felt like going into my cabin for a little while just to get out that miserable cloud of cigar smoke. Ennis also recovered fast. The next day he said, I think Raoul is the best man they, the British, have over there, but he is not the best man in the world. Under better circumstances, I think I can beat him. After finishing his race, Harriman had to be carried to a carriage and into his hotel. A day after, his eyes were still bloodshot, 
but he looked well and was clearly being well cared for, especially by a certain woman married to the hotel steward. He thought that Raoul, as a runner, could beat any walker. He complained bitterly about the conditions inside Gilmer's garden during the race. For Harriman, it was like walking through an everlasting spittoon as the people would throw cigar stumps right on the track in addition to the volume of smoke that constantly rose from the dense crowd. The Astley belt was reclaimed by the British, and Raoul was the new champion pedestrian of the world. The New York Times had devoted nearly a full page of newsprint each day for the race. Now that the contest is ended, a general feeling of relief pervades the city, and though the feeling of regret at the loss of the belt is universal, people are glad of a breathing spell and a chance to recover from their temporary attack of the walking mania. The event was a massive financial success, bringing in $54,000 in gate money and other revenue valued at $1.5 million today. Raoul went home with $20,000 or about $600,000 today. Annis received $11,000 and for Harriman's determined success, reaching 450 miles, he took home $3,679 worth about $105,000 today. He would lose a large chunk of that money settling a lawsuit related to an affair he carried on in the coming months with the wife of the steward at the St. James Hotel, who he met during the race. It was also estimated that $1 million, or $27.7 million today's value, changed hands in bets during the event. Wow! British sportsmen were happy to reclaim the belt from America. Raoul is the brave and generous Englishman, one of the most plucky of little British sportsmen that ever crossed the Atlantic. As a walker, Raoul is both bad and ugly, but as a trotter and a runner, he is wonderful. In fact, his power of endurance is really marvelous. What was O'Leary's reaction to his failure in the race? He said, I was unfortunately in poor condition and unable to do myself justice. But he admitted even if he was in top condition, Raoul would probably have still beaten him because he was a talented runner. I believe that runners can go more than 450 miles in six days and that no walker will ever again win a six-day race from good runners. I would never compete against runners because I would think the task helpless. If we can outwalk Englishmen, we can also outrun them. And there are in America as good of men in any country under the sun. All that is needed is time to learn the game and practice to make us perfect. Yes, runners were poised to take over ultra running. Stay tuned for more surprising six-day race history. If you like this podcast, please help contribute by becoming a patron. Go to ultrarunning.com member and sign up to help. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, 
And most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>